I don't want to necessarily bring up any bad memories, but I know that a lot of you have had surgeries and some of you might even have one scheduled here. Uh, let me just ask you, how would, what would you think if uh, you're going to go into a surgery this week and you find out that the surgeons are not going to wash their hands? Your room is not going to be sanitized where the surgery is going to be taking place. And furthermore, there is going to be no antiseptic used before, during, or after the operation. Anybody feel really good about that situation? No, no one does. Why? Like That's a recipe for disaster. And yet, prior to 1867, that is how surgeries were conducted. There were, when you had an operation, so often you were going to end up losing a limb or dying because of infection. Furthermore, if you were like in a military situation and you had to go to the the medic tent, that was like getting a death sentence. And surgeons couldn't figure out what is going on. Why why are all these people dying? That was until 1867 when a doctor by the name of Joseph Lister, he published a paper and he was working off of uh, Louis Pasteur's uh, studies in microbiology where he's finding all these microorganisms. And he discovered that the use of an antiseptic, carbolic acid, would greatly improve the chances of recovery and almost eliminate a lot of infections. So he published his paper. Really interesting. Despite all of his good results, he was widely criticized by the medical community. They were not fans. It was only later in life that he won all these accolades. And yet... Dr. Lister's experimental practices and his paper led to a paradigm shift in medicine. Let me give you another paradigm shift in medicine that took place. Did you know the most common medical procedure done all the way up through the end of the 19th century, which was called something called bloodletting? They'd literally make an incision and they would kind of bleed you out, or at least to a degree. When you passed out, They uh, felt like, okay, that's the effect. That's what we're looking for. And I want you to know this has been around for ages. One of the ways that they would do bloodletting was actually to use leeches. Okay. These little parasites, they'd kind of put them part on your affected part of your body. Uh, This has been around. Even ancient Egypt medics would take leeches and they believed it was the cure for anything from a fever to flatulence. Okay. You know, you had a problem. Bring out the leeches, you know what I'm saying? And they would. And uh, I won't get into all the details there to not gross you out there, but that is how they treated a wide variety of conditions. Uh, Common in the medic's bag was to have leeches. And so uh, just so that you can see this, I need a volunteer. And where are the leeches? I don't, did the worship team, I need, come on, who's going to, we want to show everybody, I mean, it's for the kingdom, right? I I have no takers. No one's going to come up here. No. Okay, I'm kidding. No, I, I'm kidding. I would not put a leech on you. You're one of the sweetest saints in our church. I can't do that to you. But, you know, okay, so we got one brave volunteer. You want to see what bravery looks like? Right there. Pink shirt. But I want you to know, we now know that that was in almost every situation harmful and made matters worse. And yet it wasn't until about the end of the 19th century that we actually change those practices. If, you're, if your doctor's still using leeches, you might want to find another doctor, okay? But I tell you this because this led to a paradigm shift. We realized that, uh, hey, listen, antiseptic, washing your hands, sanitizing the room, that's helpful. Leeches, bloodletting, not helpful. And it led to a paradigm shift in medicine. When you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, what God is doing is introducing a paradigm shift. 
from people living in the ways of the world and kind of walking with the go with the flow of worldly philosophies, living life apart from God, the book of Ecclesiastes is a clarion call to say, stop, there is a paradigm shift that is needed to walk in relationship with God, to trust him and to walk in his wisdom. And so when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, you come to Ecclesiastes chapter six. I've highlighted this before, but verses eight through 12, it's like the hinge of the book. All prior to chapter six, verses 11, uh, verses eight through 12, he's pointing out that life apart from God is vanity of vanities. Giving up on God or not choosing to walk in his wisdom is foolishness. And he says, verse eight, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? Every advantage. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? You want to know who knows? God knows. And God wants you to know him, and he wants you to walk in his wisdom. And that's what you find, verses chapter 7 through 12, over 30 different times he uses the word wise or wisdom, because he explains, sometimes in some pretty graphic detail, what it looks like to walk in his wisdom. And so why, how does God's wisdom really change our lives? How does he do it? Well, last week we saw chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, that God's wisdom gives us an eternal perspective. He begins with the big game changer of seeing your life, not just in the dot, but in the wide spectrum of the eternal line. There's there's far more than this present life. Your name, your character, how you live your life, it matters. It matters both in this present life and it matters in the life to come. You see, an eternal perspective is the most productive and one of the most precious tools that you could ever have. It's a precious possession when you see that your life matters more than just the here and now. It breaks you from self-centeredness because it's orienting you to a God-centeredness eternal perspective. How you live your life echoes in eternity. And when you come to then chapter 7, verses 5 through 11, he's going to give another uh, great benefit of walking in God's wisdom. God's wisdom not only gives you an eternal perspective, and if you missed it last week, I'd encourage you to go on our website and listen and to that message and walk through those verses. It will literally change how you live. But verses 5 through 11 actually show us that God's wisdom gives us edifying priorities. Priorities that will build our life up. And the very first one you'll find in verses 5 and 6, and he's going to just kind of walk through a variety of edifying, life-building priorities. And the first one is having the priority of growing through godly counsel and correction. If you want to be wise, these priorities need to be yours. Verses 5 and 6, let's read. He says, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this, too, is futility. And what he's saying is, listen, you want to value people that will love you enough to tell you the truth, to correct you, to even rebuke you. And he's he's using a common metaphor that people would understand when he talks about thorns to if you want just a lot of crackling and a quick flashlight fire that just goes away, that's really not good for anything. You want to use thorns. If you want to cook your food, on the other hand, or want to keep your house warm, you're not going to use thorns. 
And what he's saying there is, folks that are just going to kind of sing you a song or just kind of laugh, like, uh, all your wick transgressions and the crazy stuff that you're doing and how you're blowing up your life, ha, 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 isn't that funny? We should make a movie about this kind of craziness. He's saying, listen, that is the path of foolishness. Wisdom, on the other hand, values growing through godly counsel and correction. You want to come to a place in your life where you value good, godly feedback. You actually invite it because you want to grow. You will always find that growing Christians value godly counsel. They actually would welcome correction because, after all, they're of a growth mindset. They want to get better. They're of continuous improvement. And I want you to know that receiving rebukes correction, it's a major theme of Solomon. It's all throughout the book of like Proverbs, and you find it here in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon writes. You want... You will know that the people that love you aren't just going to laugh along with your stupidness. They're going to actually say, hey, I love you enough to tell you you're in for trouble. I'd like to help you to avoid blowing up your life. Let me give you some Proverbs from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Or here's another one, Proverbs 12:1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is, get this, stupid. You hate reproof? I don't like it when people correct me. Bible says, that's stupid. Let me give you another one. Proverbs 15, verse 5. Listen up, kids. A fool rejects his father's discipline. But he who regards reproof is sensible. I'll tell you, kids, your parents are investing in your life and they're telling you things and they're correcting you. Why? Because they love you. Don't like just roll your eyes like, how could my parents know anything? I mean, they, they use email after all. You know, they're so out of it. No, they are trying to help you. You rejecting the wisdom they're trying to impart in you, them correcting you, it lacks sense. You've got to come to a place where you've got humility. You desire growth. And that's what he's highlighting here. You want to grow through godly counsel. It doesn't mean that you like wear a t-shirt that says, hit me with your best shot. You know, just come on, all comers. But rather, you have a humility that says, you know, I'd like to hear valuable feedback from you. You want to tell your spouse that. Um, and you help me in whatever I'm working with, like parenting or in my work or in my ministry, even your hobby. You want to be of a growth mindset. And that's because that's what wisdom gives us. And when you open yourself up like that, when you become big enough to say, you know, I want to hear from you. What you're going to find is that you're going to get some invaluable advice that God is going to give through them to you. You're going to find that your relationships deepen and God is going to combat your pride. And he will develop humility when you have the desire of growing through godly counsel and correction. Now, uh, don't be like overly sensitive and overreact when someone tries to speak with you. If you kind of blow up and like you give them like 12 reasons why they're wrong, you know, and they're ah, it's all defensive. Uh, they're going to learn something. You're not mature enough to handle advice. You don't care enough about growth. You're just, I, I just got to be right all the time. Uh, I want to challenge you. This text tells us if you want to be wise, don't find some crackling thorns and people just laugh with you. Find some people that will love you and tell you the truth. Now, uh, I've had to be rebuked and corrected lots of times in my life. I remember learning this lesson very early on. I was a new Christian at the University of Oregon, and uh, one of my disciples, a guy named Brett Gilchrist, he actually oversaw the Campus Crusade there at University of Oregon. 
And he met with me every week. I learned a lot from this guy. And since I had lots of issues, there was lots of times for correction. And Grant, you're going the wrong way. Or you need to think this, you know. I get it. One of those times, uh, we were walking. And uh, he said, you know, I, w- I think you should start coming to the campus prayer time. Now, uh, Friday mornings at the University of Oregon, Christians would gather to pray. All these students. And... Um, you need to understand, like, the University of Oregon is kind of familiar to you, unfamiliar to you. Um, it is, like, ultra-pagan. It's like the University of Texas on steroids. It is wild and it's out of control. And so um, I'm like, well, you know, I've, I've been invited to this before. You know, other students had invited me to come to the prayer time, but I had a real good reasons why, reason why I didn't go. You see, it interfered with one of my workout times. Now, I wasn't some great athlete or anything like that, but I had my routines, and I was—I happened to be working out in the morning when they had their prayer time, so I just said, well, I'm busy, or uh, I've got a workout. Well, Brett said, you know, all right, listen, why don't you just pray about it? Why don't you think about it? And uh, I got a verse for you just to kind of consider. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Why don't you read about it, think about it, get back to me. Well, you know, I was starting to get familiar with the Bible. I didn't know what First Timothy 4, 8 said, but, you know, you find it you look it up and it says but for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life as well as for the future and i thought a lot about that and i kind of became convicted on some of my priorities and i'll tell you within a couple of weeks guess who is a regular at friday morning prayer yours truly and i want you to know that it was actually one of the highlights of my college career because I, I saw God at work. I mean, we were praying for each other, for Christians to stand strong, to not buy into all the temptations that were around us. And we were praying for people to come to Christ. And we saw a lot of that happen. I tell you, it was powerful to be rebuked, corrected, and to take some steps of growth. Gordon MacDonald uh, writes of an experience where he was walking down the street with a missionary friend of his. And uh, Gordon was talking about a mutual acquaintance, and he said some things that were derogatory and less than flattering in his comments. And that missionary friend of his, like, stopped him right there and said, listen, Gordon, a man of God would not say such thing about another person. Whoa. Just kind of hit him like, like a two-by-four right in the center of his head. And Gordon wrote of these experiences in a book called Restoring Your Spiritual Passion. Let me read what he said. The rebuke stung. And I lived with its pain for many days afterward. But I will always be thankful for that rebuke, painful as it was, because I hear those words every time I'm about to embarrass myself with a needless comment about another person. That was a rebuke that forced me to grow. Looking back, I realized that rebukes were and still are among my greatest learning moments. They set me free from things that otherwise would have destroyed my spiritual passion. They spotlighted things that were hurting me badly, but that I did not understand. So I'm thankful for my, to my wife and other special friends who play the position of rebuker. I understand the proverb that says, in the end, people appreciate frankness more than flattery. You see, if you are kind of more of the defensive type, let me just tell you what's going on here. You've got some insecurities that you need to talk with God about. If you're always just kind of like pulling people off or, you know, barking at them when they're trying to help you, they're going to learn, leave you alone. You're not ready to take those next steps. You want to address those things. Uh, Don't be overly sensitive. Value, like the text says, growing through godly counsel. 
You know, you want your life to be kind of like a river that has all these tributaries going into it that help you grow and become strong. And you're going to find this, that the people that really love you are the ones that are going to care enough about you to tell you the truth, to correct and to counsel. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Let me give you another edifying priority you find right here in the text. Notice, look at verse 7. Another priority of, that comes from wisdom is despising corruption. For oppression, verse 7, makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression has the idea of extortion, tyranny, uh, dis- being deceitful to acquiring things. And like a bribe is to say, you know, it's to offer someone like money or some sort of consequence if you don't do or you do what I'm asking you to do. So like, listen, you don't do this, some bad things are going to happen to you. And what this verse tells us is it will make you mad. Not This isn't the word for angry. This is the Hebrew word for like make you go crazy. There is, some, there is corruption in our heart and there's something about being oppressive, uh, tyranny, uh, deceitful, extortion, bribing, that it just like fuels that. And it becomes like exponential in its effect on your life. And so you could be a God-fearing individual, but if you start running with a crowd that's living in the paradigm of this world... That basically says, hey, it doesn't matter how you get what you want, whether it's being kind and nice or being deceitful and bribing individuals. It doesn't matter if you're corrupt. I want you to know that you buy into that and pretty soon you're going to start forsaking everything that's really important. Your family, uh, your priorities, God, you start living in a vacuum. You see, that's why wisdom values despising corruption. It has an extremely adverse effect upon a person's life. Look at another one here. God's wisdom also gives us this gift of patiently persisting. Look at this. This is such a good one in verse 8. He says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience in spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. It has the idea that you have to learn how to patiently persist in life. Some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Stephen Covey. Uh, He wrote a lot of books. One of his best-known books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The number two habit that he highlights in this book is to begin with the end in mind. When you start something, some project or whatever you're trying to work on, start to isolate and visualize what does it look look like at completion. What would it look like if I really had like this virtue being manifested in my life or this characteristic? Or this attitude? Or if, what will this project look like in completion? Begin with the end in mind. See it and always be moving toward it. Well, I want you to know that he didn't come up with that. 3,000 years ago, God had Solomon write verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than the haughtiness of pride. You have got to learn to be in it for the long haul. I have learned that the only thing that I got free and didn't have to work for was my salvation. But I know like relationally, academically, uh, different projects that I'm working on physically, they've all had to be like long term goals. I've had to patiently persist. I'm sure that you've learned the same thing as well. You know, so like 
like currently on 2018, these weren't like New Year's resolutions, but um, I prayed about it and I've put some goals down and I've got them in my closet. In fact, here's a picture. I took a picture of, I put that up there and it says in it for the long run and underneath I've actually written down some goals, some of them, some mile markers. Now I didn't include that because I didn't need like 800 accountability partners. Okay. But I walk into my closet and one, I see, you know, things that I want to be doing with my kids. And the other is I see this. And I know that I've got to be in it for the long haul, patiently persisting. And it kind of goes the grain, goes against the grain of how we're wired, especially in this current time. I mean, we're into instant everything. We want instant coffee. We want instant entertainment. I mean, if our modem is going too slow, it is a major problem. We got to get the IT guys in here because, it, I mean, this took five seconds. It should only take two, you know, but that's, that mentality gets transferred to all of life. We think that we should have it instantly. And I want you to know that wisdom path is you want to patiently persist. I mean, we've come to a place where you don't think that you have to wait or work hard for anything. You know what it's, who it's really hurting? It's the younger generation. They are shocked that you actually have to work hard for a long period of time or you have to wait for things like, whoa, we're not used to that. We're into like, I think it, I want it. I should get it now. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Deborah Johnson writes of her scenario where she has her seven-year-old daughter who wanted to take violin lessons. And so they went to the music store and they're going to rent a violin. And, and she's explaining like, listen, these lessons, violin lessons, very expensive and you're going to have to work hard. And there are going to be a lot of times where you're going to feel like you should give up. You can't do that. You've got to hang in there. So her seven-year-old daughter is taking this all in. And then she writes that in her most sober voice, she said this. So, Mommy, it will be a lot like marriage. And she's like, yeah, that's right. That's, that is how it works. You want to have a great marriage? Friends, you've got to patiently persist. They're going to be, I want you to know, a lot of times where this is going to be difficult and it's going to be challenging and you're going to be visualizing and dreaming of other alternatives and I want you to know, no, 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 no. Go with God's wisdom and patiently persist. You know, as Christians, we have got to get rid of the MasterCard mentality. The idea that if I got an idea of something that I want, that I should get it within the first five minutes of, of my thought. I want you to know that Amazon Prime isn't necessarily overly helpful. <gasps> I think of it. Oh, I'll think I'll just quick order it and then it'll show up at my doorstep in a couple days. You know? No, listen, friends. God's wisdom is learning how to patiently persist. I'll save before I buy. I will work hard for a long time and I will wait on God's timing. Friends, it's one of the gifts that, of God's wisdom. Look at another. Look at verse 9. Controlling one's anger is a priority. It's an edifying priority that God's wisdom gives us. Look at this, verse 9. Get ready. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom or the heart of fools. Anger, that feeling of annoyance or displeasure or hostility, okay? And I want you to know that we all have some anger issues. You need to know you're sitting around a lot of angry people. Now, right now, I don't see anybody angry, but I can show you some other times, right? Where it's not been quite as pleasant. Anger is a huge issue. 
It's like what happens if we don't get our way and it doesn't quite go the way we want. It is built into our flesh to respond negatively. It's one of the major issues that is addressed in Scripture. And I want you to know that if you don't have a relationship with Christ and you are not asking him to help you address these issues, anger can become a way of life. You're mad at yourself. You're mad at your spouse. You're mad at your kids. You're mad at your pet. You're mad at God. And anger has a way of just driving your life. Kathy Fussell uh, wrote about this experience, and I just thought I'd read this to you. She says, I have found... That if I don't have my quiet time each morning, I tend to lose my temper over insignificant things. Recently, my son, Andrew, reminded me of the need for daily prayer. He had accidentally spilled his drink, and I went into a tirade. Andrew ended my harsh words when he quietly asked, Mom, did you forget to ask Jesus to help you be nice today? (laughs) The blessings of the power of his presence. Let me give you a couple verses. You might want to write these down. These are good for all of us. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. It says this, be angry and yet do not sin. So the Bible says, listen, you're going to be angry. There are the things that are going to make you upset. Be angry and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger And do not give the devil an opportunity. See, anger that he allows to simmer and it grows into resentment and bitterness. Giving the devil an opportunity is going to create all sorts of division and all sorts of problems. It's going to contort you and distort you. He says, do not sin. You see, one of the priorities of wisdom that God gives us is learning how to control our anger. I want to introduce you to a guy that I've got a lot of respect for, a guy by the name of Dr. Ben Carson. I think you're familiar with him, a presidential candidate. Uh, he is currently serving as the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, he became a household name and world-renowned because he is known as one of the premier brain surgeons. Um, work that he's done with a variety of Siamese twins, uh, techniques that he developed for complicated brain surgeries, Uh, had really put him into international prominence. But there's something that you need to know. What most folks do not know is that he had an uncontrollable temper as a kid and as a youth. And his career almost ended before it began. In his book, Take the Risk, Dr. Carson talks of the day where he literally pleaded with God to help him deal with this critical character, character flaw. And let me just read you an excerpt from this book. Dr. Carson writes, one day as a 14-year-old in ninth grade, I was hanging out at the house of my friend Bob, listening to his radio, when he suddenly leaned over and dialed the tuner to another station. I'd been enjoying the song playing on the first station, so I reached over and flipped it back. And Bob switched stations again, and a wave of rage welled up, almost without thinking. I pulled out the pocket knife I always carried and in one continuous motion, flicked open the blade and lunged it viciously right at my friend's stomach. Incredibly, the point of the knife struck Bob's large metal buckle and the blade snapped off in my hands. Bob raised his eyes from the broken piece of metal in my hand to my face. He was too surprised to say anything. 
but I could read the terror in his eyes. I, 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 I'm sorry, I sputtered. And then I dropped the knife and ran for home, horrified by the realization of what I had just done. I burst into our empty house, locked myself in the bathroom, and sank to the floor, miserable and frightened. I could no longer deny that I had a severe anger problem and that I'd never achieved my dream of being a doctor with an uncontrollable temper. I admitted to myself there was no way I could control it by myself. Lord, please, you've got to help me, I prayed. Take this temper away. You promise that if I ask anything in faith, you'll do it. And I believe you can change me. I slipped out, got a Bible, back on the bathroom floor. I opened the book of Proverbs. The words of Proverbs 16:32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules a spirit than he who takes a city. It convicted me. But it also gave me hope. I felt God telling me that although he knew everything about me, he still loved me. That because he made me, he was the only one who could change me. And that he would. Gradually, I stopped crying and my hands quit shaking. And I was filled with the assurance that God had answered my prayer. Uncontrolled anger has never again been a threat to me or those around me. God has provided and will provide whatever strength I need to control my anger. And friends, that's one of the edifying priorities that God's wisdom gives us. Controlling one's anger. Let me give you another priority. And this is the final one that he lists in this section here. And that is not living in the past. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Kind of uh, pining for the good old days, it's neither wise nor is it valuable. It's been said that um, the good old days are really the combination of a bad memory and a good imagination, right? I don't really remember all the difficult stuff, and then you kind of just enhance, and you kind of overlook, and friends, he's saying, listen, Bruce Springsteen might be singing about the glory days, you know, in the 1980s, but you need to be focused on rejoicing in the day that the Lord has given you today. Uh, you got to come to a place where you're saying, I, you know, I'm not going to trade today for anything. This is the day that God has given me, and I'm going to live in it for today. For his glory. You see, yesterday is past. It can't be changed. There is no promise for tomorrow, so I'm going to make the most of what I've got today. It's kind of like the Roman poet Horace said, carpe diem, seize the day. That doesn't mean that we don't learn lessons from the past or that we're not uh, thinking about and focusing on the future and preparing for the future. It's just that, listen, we're not going to be paralyzed by our past. We're not going to be hypnotized by the future what we're going to do is we're going to make the most of the present. The Victorian essayist, how do you say that word? Essayist, there, essayist, whatever. This Victorian guy, Hilaire Belek, I got it wrong first service too. You think I'd get better, I know. Okay, he wrote this, while you're dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. So one of the priorities of wisdom is don't live in the past. Make the most of your present. You see, God's wisdom gives us an eternal perspective. It gives us a host of edifying priorities that you find here in verses 
5 through 11, but it also gives you an earthly protection. Look at verses 11 through 14. He says, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. What he's saying there is, listen, it's not wrong to be prosperous, to have money, to get even a good inheritance. In fact, it can be a great blessing if you have wisdom. See, if you don't have wisdom, you're not looking for God and his priorities and that the whole idea you recognize these are blessings from him and you seek to honor him with these things. Friends, your money, your inheritance, instead of being a blessing, far from it, it becomes a curse. You know, if you think like, wow, if I could just get this glorious inheritance from my parents, you know, and I'll have all this money, life would be awesome. Friends, if you're seeking to live life apart from God, if you value some sort of inheritance versus valuing wisdom that God gives you in his word, you're in for a sore disappointment. You would be better off if all you inherited was a lamp. Because if you think that, it's, that real success and real protection is in money, friends, you're missing the point of life. Life is meant to be lived in relationship with God. And wisdom is a protection. Now, I want you to know that money... It could be helpful. You face a financial difficulty, having some financial resources, it's helpful. It's a protection. But wisdom is superior. It preserves your life. It guides you. It gives you protection from moral and spiritual uh, damage. It keeps you away from the difficulties of life because it warns you. You don't want to go there and it guides you. This is how you want to live your life. These are the priorities. And yet so often we just think it's all about money. And if it's all about money apart from God, get ready for disaster, both for you personally and for the lives that you infect. Wisdom is a protection. It gives you maturity, stability. It warns you. It gives you checkpoints. And what you're going to find is when you've got wisdom, man, even if you should lose your job or you get a promotion, wisdom guides you. Fear isn't so prevalent. You're not always hitting the panic button about 10 times a day. Because God's wisdom is guiding and governing. You see him at work. And look at verse 13 about this earthly protection that God's wisdom gives us. He says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Who is able to straighten what he has bent? I want you to think about that. Your, your uh, version of the Bible might say uh, what he's made crooked. It's not that God actually orchestrates evil. That's not what he's saying. Is that he's saying that God is involved even in the bends in the road. There are in all of our lives things that we wish had not happened. Either for our lives personally or for our family or people that we know. It's like this bend in the road. And what he's saying is that God is at work. His sovereignty rules over all even those bends and those twists and those turns. They may not make sense to you. God does not promise that everything that happens in life is going to be what you think is good. What he does promise is that I'm in the midst of all of that. He's accomplishing his work. And part of living a life with God is learning to live by faith and trust in him. I mean, part of the reason that God just actually puts these bends in the road 
is to keep us from thinking that we know it all. And it keeps us from living life independent of him. You know, some days life is awesome. The sun is shining. The birds are singing. The drama at home is pretty minimal. And the job is enjoyable. And then sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes there's some real difficulty. He says, I want you, verse 13, consider the work of God. He is so intimately involved in even the details of our life, even the difficult ones. Who can straighten it? You can't if he's bent it. Uh, There is a prayer called the Serenity Prayer. There is a theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote it in 1934. Now, I don't necessarily agree with uh, all of Niebuhr's theology, but I do like this prayer. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's very simple and short. It just says this. Oh, God, give us serenity to accept what cannot be changed, courage to change what should be changed, and wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. You know what that is? That's verse 13. It's the lesson that Solomon is seeking to teach us. And he says in verse 14, In the days of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. People simply cannot know what life is really all about. And what is going to happen in the future apart from knowing God and trusting in his word and his wisdom. It's impossible. And I want you to know that when we trust God, it's an earthly protection. It's an earthly protection for our souls that are bombarded by the messages of the world that you should live life apart from him. So, friends, when you face that which you do not know, And you cannot know. Trust what you do know. There's every one of us has got some issues and some problems and some things that like, I have no idea why we had to go through this. I've got multiple ones. When I face the things that I cannot know, I must go back to what I do know. I know God is faithful. I know about his character. I know who he is. I know what he's revealed in his word. I know that I can trust him. And so I choose to do just that. You see, walking in wisdom comes from trusting in God. It is an earthly protection. And friends, if you want wisdom in this life, if, if you're hunger for it, if you've been beat up by the world and its philosophies enough, and you're saying, I want God and his wisdom, then you want Christ. You see, God has given us Jesus, not only for all the times that we've not walked in wisdom and we have made a mess of things, we need forgiveness. God has given us Christ So literally that we're united with the very one who is wisdom personified so that his spirit at work in our life allows us to walk wisely so that we experience joy in life. We bring glory to God. We live life as it's intended. He's actually described in this word. You're going to find that these things are unattainable apart from him. That's why he has given us the savior, the resurrected savior, so that the reality of wisdom can be true in our life. This is the paradigm shift that is being called for in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think you're going to find this principle. God's wisdom is attractive when relationship with him is active. God's wisdom is attractive when relationship with him is active. He's literally saying, 
Trust me. In my strength, walk in my ways. I don't know if you know this, but the uh, shepherds in Britain, uh, they run their sheep through this um, large like tub of antiseptic. And it's, it's a terrible experience for the sheep. In fact, here's a picture of it here. Um, what they do periodically is they take all their sheep and all their rams. Some of the shepherds, I guess they just throw them in these huge vats of this antiseptic. Others, they kind of like run them and kind of herd them in there and they have to jump in there. And I mean, this is traumatic for the sheep and to make matters worse, the shepherds will like push their heads down underneath there, you know, and they're just making all these noise and they want to jump out. But then they have their little sheep dogs around there and those dogs have a way of encouraging the sheep to stay in the bat that they hate, you know, you know, and they're just like, this is bad, you know, and they're just like hating it all, you know, and the shepherds coming by and they're pushing their heads underneath there and they're, oh, they're making a mess. And what the sheep don't know is that the shepherds actually really care about the sheep. You see, by doing so, uh, if they did not receive this antiseptic, these sheep would likely die from parasites and disease. And yet, the sheep have no idea what's going on. They just can't wait for this to be over. And I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, that picture, sometimes I think, like, that's my life. There I am. There are some times where I've had to go through things that simply do not make sense. Why? Why did this happen? My family and or me personally. What What's going on here? This is bad, you know, and I'm, I'm sure I've said it. And I want you to know that there is a good shepherd that knows what he's doing. And what he's doing, his knowledge, it, it's too wonderful for me. I just have to come to a place where I trust him. Maybe this is a picture of you. And you're going through these difficulties and you're not sure why. I want you to go with the path of wisdom. Walking in wisdom comes from trusting in God. And this is the paradigm shift that God is calling for in his word, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. You love us so much that you've given us your word and you've given us the incarnate word, Christ, so that we might know your ways, walk in wisdom, have forgiveness for all of our transgressions. And so, Lord, if there is someone here who's come here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my self-centeredness. I need forgiveness and I need life and I need your leadership. I need wisdom. So this morning, I believe and I commit my way to you. And Lord, for all of us, may we walk in your ways. We know the goodness of wisdom. When we value maturity, may we value you being glorified in our lives. And so we pray and ask this humbly in Jesus name. Amen.